Continuing our study in Paul's epistle to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, just one verse now, verse 20 of chapter 14. Pay close attention. This is God's holy word. Brethren, do not be children in understanding. However, in malice be babes, but in understanding be mature. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's give thanks. Father, indeed, as we enter your word today, we pray that you would make us uh, mature, grow us up, and cause us to hear and know and love your law, your precepts, your statutes. Indwell us with your Holy Spirit that we might live according to the things that you've said. Father, now loosen my tongue, clear my mind that I might deliver this word clearly and fill me with your spirit that it might have power and effect. Uh, Fill us all with your spirit that we might receive this word which you have delivered to us and implanted in our hearts. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You all have probably either read about or heard about, at some point, the Stanford Marshmallow Experiment. It was an experiment, a series of studies on the subject of delayed gratification It was carried out in the 70s by a psychology professor at Stanford University. In the experiment, children were offered a choice between one small reward now or two small rewards if they waited for a short period. So one thing immediately or two things if they just waited for a short period. So the researcher would put a child at a table, seat them there at a table in a room without any distractions or no posters or paintings or pictures or nothing, nothing going on in the room, a bare room with a table and on the table was a plate and on the plate was a marshmallow and the child seated at the table was told that if they would not touch the marshmallow and would wait, if you just wait till I come back, you get two marshmallows. But if they ate that one, That's all you get, you don't get another one. So the researcher would leave the room for about 15 minutes, and if there was still a marshmallow on the plate when they returned, well then they would reward the child with a second treat. So the children left in the room by themselves would typically have a really difficult time resisting the temptation in front of them. Some of them would would cover their eyes so that they wouldn't see the, the tempting marshmallow on the plate. Others would turn around in their chair and face the other way so that the tempting marshmallow would be behind them and they couldn't see it. Some started kicking the desk out of frustration or pulling at their pigtails or pulling at their hair out of frustration and not being able to, to touch the marshmallow. Some would lightly stroke and pet the marshmallow. Wouldn't eat it, but pet it. You can see, you can see the film on this. And then others would just simply eat the marshmallow as soon as the researcher left the room. They would just pop it right in their mouth and they were done. Out of the 600 children that took part, a small minority ate it immediately. The rest did the best they could to delay as long as they could. Only a third waited long enough to receive the second treat. Now, the researchers wanted to know, how can we compare this to academic success? Is there any marker, is there any way of, of determining whether delayed, uh, a, a built-in sense of delayed gratification, if you can put off present comforts for future comforts, does that have any bearing on future academic success? And so they tracked these same children and tried to tie the results to their SAT scores once they were in high school. And it, that there wasn't a clear there wasn't a clear connection there. It turned out the biggest indicators of a child's ability to delay gratification was their economic situation and whether they had a father in the home, which is pretty interesting. Children with less stability in their home environment 
Children with less stability were more likely to eat immediately. You, you can't wait around. If you're a child in an unstable situation, you can't wait around. If you see something good in front of you, you know, adults break their promises all the time. There might not be a second one. Uh, so we eat, we eat immediately. Uh, but, but what that experiment shows and, and what it highlights is the impatience, the short-sightedness, the impulsiveness of immaturity. Small children, and we all were small children at some point, small children are concerned mostly with their most immediate comforts. And they don't have a long range view of the future. You might have seen uh, that silly video that's been going around on the internet last couple of weeks uh, where the two small boys, the twin boys, are sharing a milkshake, right? Have you seen this? Has anybody seen this? And the, the one little twin has the milkshake, very happy, sucking on it. And the other little boy is just crying his eyes out. He's just bawling. And the mama says, give it to your brother. And so he gives the milkshake to his brother. And now he flips out and he starts crying while his brother enjoys the milkshake. He's very happy. And then that little boy, okay, give your brother a sip. And now he starts crying as the other boy has the, has the shake. It's like he can't think, and these boys were about a year and a half, maybe two years old uh, in, this, in, this little, in this little video. But you, you see, I can't see past the very next second to know that if I just wait, there's reward for me and there's something good in the future. They can't see past this meal or this thing or this treat or what I'm gonna do for fun right now or what I'm gonna do after this you know, $5 bill is spent. What makes me happy and what brings me pleasure right now is most important. And because they can't see the present, children, I'm, I'm see, I'm see, because they can't see past the present, rather, children require others to take care of them and take responsibility for them. Children require that stability that comes from people who can see two steps down the road, from adults who take responsibility for the future, who take responsibility for outcomes, Adults to protect them and restrain them from making bad, impulsive decisions. Because immaturity dwells on me and this moment and can't see outside of me or outside of this moment. That is the essence of immaturity. Well, throughout this whole letter, Paul has been encouraging real maturity among the Corinthian Christians. He's been exhorting them to take responsibility for more than just their own emotions and sensual pleasures, but to take care of each other. Take care of your weaker brethren. Grow, grow up. Think about what you're doing and how this affects everyone and everything around you. Become men and put away childish things. Put away the silliness and the sensuality of paganism, which is, at its core, extremely immature. And now he brings this to a fine point, and, and did it in the last chapter we studied, uh, dealing with their proper behavior in worship and, and their misuse of spiritual gifts. They've been behaving like children with regard to their spiritual gifts, competing over who has the better one, who has, who has the better thing to offer, competing for their moment in the spotlight. And Paul explains to them, you're boasting over things that are gifts of the Spirit. How can you be prideful in something that you had no hand in obtaining? And the very things that they're bragging about are passing away and going to be replaced very soon. So he directs them to more excellent things, things that last, things that edify the body, but things that require some level of maturity. We might raise the question in the midst of all this, you know, I thought Jesus said something about having the faith of a child. What, what, what are you saying about maturity and learning and understanding? If Jesus says we're supposed to be like children, well, in what way are we to be childlike? 
And that's where verse 20 is so helpful and why I read that first. Brethren, do not be children in understanding. However, in malice be babes, but in understanding be mature. Paul explains this. Do not be children in understanding. Do not be children in, in wisdom and clarity of, of thought, but, but in malice, in sin, in the experience of wickedness, in, in ignorance of ugly things, be like children. Realize your dependence on God. Trust in God like a child, but, but in understanding, be mature. And that's where he's trying to lead them. That's where he's urging them toward a mature understanding of what God is accomplishing in the world, of, of God's purposes for the church, of, of what real faith looks like and how it operates, and for them to be able to clearly communicate that to others. But sadly, they're stuck way back here acting like children consumed with immediate sensual gratification. So let's go back to the beginning of the chapter and see how this unfolds and how, it, how he gets to this point. In chapter 14, verse 1, he begins, Pursue love and desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. For he who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men but to God, for no one understands him. However, in the spirit he speaks mysteries. But... He who prophesies speaks edification and exhortation and comfort to men. He who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but he who prophesies edifies the church. I wish you all spoke with tongues, but even more that you prophesied. For he who prophesies is greater than he who speaks with tongues, unless indeed he interprets that the church may receive edification. Uh, before we can dig into his instruction, we first have to understand what he means by speaking in tongues and what he means by prophesying. What, what is the gift of tongues? Of course, we see tongues in operation. We see them practiced in Acts chapter 2. The apostles preached the gospel to the multitudes of nations that were represented there uh, on the day of Pentecost, and, and they spoke them in many various languages. They didn't do that because nobody would understand them if they spoke Latin or Greek or Aramaic. If Peter preached in Aramaic, everybody there would have understood him. If he preached in Latin, everybody would have understood what he was saying. But they preach in tongues and the apostles preach in the tongues of the people gathered there because it was a twofold sign of the blessing of the Holy Spirit on the church and the judgment of God on Israel. The judgment on Israel is that God's word is leaving you and it's going out to the nations. It's going out to the worlds. So uh, the, I'm, I'm sorry, the, uh, the families of the world. So Luke mentions tongue speaking uh, there in Acts chapter 2 and then, and then a couple other times in the book of Acts. It's a sign accompanying the revelation of the gospel to a new group. So every time the gospel breaks a threshold, every time it, it crosses a, a cultural border, you see the Holy Spirit poured out upon the people. They're baptized. After they're baptized, the Holy Spirit is poured out upon them. There are miraculous signs, including tongues. There are healings and, and there are great works of the Holy Spirit as confirmation of the validity and the power of God's word and at the same time judgment on Israel. Um, in 1 Corinthians though there's another dimension to this gift of tongues that Paul refers to and it's never mentioned anywhere else. It's never talked about. The, the way that it's being practiced here in Corinth seems to be as something of a, of a prayer language between a person and God. There's, there was this personal, individual aspect to it. We don't get an example of how it works. There's no instruction. Uh, there's, there's no details. And it seems to have been unintelligible unless there was someone there who could interpret it. Outside of that, how it worked is a mystery. 
Now, that was tongues. Prophecy was a different spiritual gift, which when you and I think of prophecy, we think of, well, that's a prediction of the future. You know, what is, what is the prophecy? Well, it's something about the future. No, it was predominantly prophecy or prophesying was predominantly the authoritative communication of the Word of God. Now, the spiritual miraculous gift of prophecy might have also included not only an authoritative declaration or preaching of the Word of God, but included in that uh, a particular insight or spiritual wisdom in, into what needed to be said to address specific needs. Um, or, or sins, like Paul is doing here. This is his letter is is prophesying to the to the people of Corinth. But prophecy was intelligible. It was always instructive. While, while tongues were given as an initial sign to unbelievers, prophecy was given to the church for her maturity and growth. And in that sense, a a form of the gift or or a uh, uh, something similar to the gift of prophecy continues in the church today in the form of preaching and teaching. The Puritans used this word prophesy as another word for preach. And they wouldn't say preach, they would say, well, he's going to prophesy. And here's why. It's because the, the, the prophets in the Bible, whether it's Daniel or, or John uh, who wrote Revelation, they saw God reveal his will in visions and dreams, and then they communicated that by the power of the Spirit to the people. Preachers and teachers today see God reveal his will in the Word, and they communicate that to the people. It's the same Spirit at work, the same Spirit who's revealing the will of God, because the Bible is Spirit-breathed. Every word comes from the Spirit. And so when you look into the things that the Spirit has recorded and preserved and delivered to us, and then you say those things, well, I'm not, I'm not entirely opposed to the way that the Puritans use the word prophesy as long as we define what that means. Now, with both gifts in view, Paul presents a case for the excellence and the superiority of prophesying over Tongue speaking. Tongue speaking without an interpreter is speech to God, not to men. If you speak in tongues without an interpreter, no one understands you. You speak mysteries, Paul says. You edify yourself, he says. The one prophesying, on the other hand, speaks edification and exhortation and comfort to the church. He edifies the church. But the Corinthian church, and here's where the problem is, they're highly valuing the spectacle and the experience of tongue speaking and devaluing the more common but much more helpful, broadly edifying gift of prophecy. And so the difference that Paul is making here between tongue speaking and prophesying is between the personal and the corporate, between immaturity and maturity, the intelligible and the unintelligible. And so verse 6, he says, uh, But now, brethren, if I come to you speaking with tongues, what shall I profit you unless I speak to you either by revelation, by knowledge, by prophesying, or by teaching? He says, if I come to you, believers, speaking in tongues, and you don't understand what I'm saying, what good is that to you? It might be a great experience, especially for me, it might be a great experience. It might be something really to behold. But how do you benefit from that? How much more would you benefit from clear, intelligible teaching? And to make this point, he uses three different illustrations. First, he says, think of musical instruments. Verse 7, even things without life, whether flute or harp, 
when they make a sound, unless they make a distinction in the sounds, how will it know, uh, be known what is piped or played? Things without life, flute or harp, when they make a sound, if they don't make a distinction in the sounds, how will it be known what is piped or played? The flute that he mentions was one of the most popular wind instruments of the time. The harp or the lyre was another popular instrument. Uh, it was a small stringed instrument that uh, lots of people learned how to play, just like everybody in college knew how to play the guitar. You know, like everybody knows three chords. Everybody can play, you know, Wonderwall, or that was in my generation, or whatever your generation was. Everybody, everybody could play three, three chords. Uh, so these harps, these lyres were everywhere, and so there were a lot of people playing at vastly different skill levels. Everybody knows what a poorly played flute sounds like. Everybody knows what a poorly plucked uh, lute or, or lyre sounded like. And so if the person doesn't make a clear noise, if a, if a person doesn't make a clear sound, nobody's going to recognize the tune. And as far as the listeners are concerned, it's all going to be a meaningless mishmash of notes. It's, it's all notes, but I can't, I can't find the tune in there. The musician who makes meaningless noise doesn't love his audience. R remember the very beginning of chapter 13. Paul says, however many tongues I speak in, if I don't have love, I'm like a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. I'm just making a racket. I'm not edifying my hearers. Uh, so, so think of a poorly played flute or a badly played harp. And that's, and that's what it sounds like when there's tongues and no interpreter. The next, the next example he uses is a military one, verse 8. For if the trumpet makes an uncertain sound, who will prepare for battle? So likewise you, unless you utter by the tongue words easy to understand, how will it be known what is spoken? For you will be speaking into the air. In the, in the war for independence and in the war between the states uh, and Napoleonic Wars and other, other wars of that period, a bugle was used in the camp to communicate when it's time to get up and assemble, when it's time to go to bed, when it's time to eat. And then bugles were used in battle to communicate orders from the officers to men all over the battlefield. Uh, a bugle doesn't have any keys. You can only make, I think, five notes with, uh, with a bugle, but you can tell by the sequence of those five notes, whether it's time to get your guns or charge or retreat. Cavalries could have all kinds of formations and would shift around at the sound of the bugle. Well, the Roman armies had the very same thing. The Roman armies had trumpets to do that as well. You get your orders from the trumpet. The trumpet was as good as the voice of the general. But if that trumpet or that horn or that bugle just plays squawks and all kinds of random notes, how does the army know what to do? Where does the army go? The army is headed for disaster. Likewise, this is Paul's illustration. If, if the speech in the church is undiscernible, if it's incoherent, the army of the Lord is not going to have direction. The third example he, he uses just, just comes from the common experience of living in a big ancient city like Corinth where there are always foreigners coming through from all parts of the world and you constantly had to work to overcome language barriers. Verse 10, there are, it may be, so many kinds of languages in the world and none of them is without significance. Therefore, if I do not know the meaning of the language, I shall be a foreigner to him who speaks, and he who speaks will be a foreigner to me. 
these languages all have their own beauty and glory. But, but if you and I are speaking different languages, I'm a foreigner to you, you're a foreigner to me. Communication is severely hindered if we don't have the same language. And when they're speaking these foreign languages in the church, they're not bringing everyone together like at Pentecost. It has the opposite effect. They're pushing everybody apart like at Babel. The focus should have been on using their gifts in such a way to bring the body together, not erect new barriers between them. This speaking in tongues seemed to be such a matter of pride for the Corinthians. It, it, it turns out that the thing that they were proud of made them impossible to understand to each other and to the world. Now, now what's the instruction in here for us? Because I can tell y'all are at the edge of your seats right now and, you know, uh, uh, hearing this. Um, what, what is the instruction for us? Well, I'm not convinced, of course, that we have the uh, gift of tongues today at all in this way. So we don't have this precise challenge. We don't have this precise set of circumstances, but it's very important that we keep everything in worship. And when we're together, it's, it's important to keep everything intelligible and instructional. Everything has to be able to be heard and discerned, which is why we don't do our liturgy in Latin. At a time in church history where everybody spoke Latin, that might have been really appropriate. It might have been really good and beautiful and stately. But I don't know Latin. I know a couple of words. Some of you may know a few more words than me. But we don't, we don't speak or pray or sing or teach in Latin. And so when we have special music or choir music in Latin, I always want to have a, spe- a, a printed translation. It's, it's always preferable to have everything in our common language. Now, sometimes there are some beautiful pieces and classic things that if you're going to do them, you do them in their original language and maybe even German. They're good, you know, beautiful uh, Christmas things in German that, you know, that, that have been wrote and that's fine. But, but without a translation with somewhere, printed or anyway, without a translation, it's, and if it's not a language we all know, how am I edified? It, it, may sound, it may sound really nice, but we're speaking a tongue without an interpreter. It may be a beautiful sound, but it's an unintelligible sound unless we all know the language. Incidentally, that's why I always, uh, that's, that's why we read and teach the scriptures from a good modern translation of the scriptures. I love the King James Version. It's what I cut my teeth on. It's what I read up until I was about 25 or, or 26 years old. Uh, but I found that in teaching and preaching from the King James Version, you spend a great deal of time just translating old English into modern English, and, and that's a real inaccessible way to do things. So if no one knows what we're saying, as, as Paul is saying here, what's, what's the point? You're just speaking into the air, he says. So the teaching that he gives us here is that in our gatherings, uh, everything must be intelligible. And on top of that, the, the emphasis is more on the instruction of the community rather than the individual religious experience. These, these tongue speakers might have had a really good one-on-one experience in fellowship with the Lord, but they were doing it at the expense of the community, which is why in worship we all say amen together after we sing. We raise our hands together uh, for the doxology. We kneel together. We confess our sins together. We eat the bread and the wine together. We, we do different hymns and different psalms every week, but there are some things we do every week and say every week. And, and there's an element of Catholicity to this where anybody uh, from with any kind of Christian background ought to be able to find a point of access and say, oh yeah, I know that, or yeah, I can read that, or I can say that. So, 
there's a uh, Catholicity to it, but it's also a, 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 a access for our, our younger members as well. Uh, we don't just practice Pado communion, we practice Pado liturgy, which is why there's some things that we sing every single week, because as soon as we sing those, our little people know them, and they hear them, and they can sing them, and they know, oh yeah, that's for me, I know that part, and I can sing that, I can sing that part, I can say that part. You notice I keep the... Uh, I keep the prayer of confession of sin the same for about four weeks at a time. It's because the first time your young readers read it, you might, they might be struggling to get through it. By week three, they can pick it up. By week four, they've got it. Uh, it's, it's out of concern for their participation in worship that, that we have these things, and also because they're good and they're, they're ca small c Catholic. They're accessible for, for everyone. Um, and and there's, uh, so, so it's a, a communal emphasis that we can all do these things together and we're not trying to underscore or highlight individual expressions of worship but communal expressions and that is a takeaway from from Paul's instruction here verse 12 even so you since you are zealous for spiritual gifts let it be for the edification of the church that you seek to excel now, how many times in this letter has he said something like this? It's not about you only. It's about the body. I, I know you're zealous, but in your zeal, remember to seek the edification and the maturity of the church. That's Paul's highest concern. He longs for a genuinely adult, grown-up uh, 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 body. And this, this overemphasis on individual displays of spiritual gifts is stalling them out in a state of immaturity. Verse 13. Therefore, let him who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful. What is the conclusion then? I will pray with the spirit, and I will also pray with the understanding. I will sing with the spirit, and I will also sing with understanding. Otherwise, if you bless with the spirit, how will he who occupies the place of the uninformed say amen at the giving of thanks since he doesn't understand what you say. For if indeed you, you indeed give thanks well, but the other is not edified. I thank my God I speak with tongues more than you all, yet in the church I would rather speak five words with my understanding that I may teach others also than 10,000 words in a tongue. Now up to this point, he's focused on the effects of gifts to people outside of the one exercising them. How, how, does, how does this affect everybody else? Now he turns his attention to the one practicing the gift and how he's affected. In brief, he says, anyone who prays, anyone who speaks, anyone who sings in a tongue is not using his understanding. His mind is not engaged in the same way. Now, the, the Christian faith is more than a mental exercise to be sure, but anyone whose mind is disengaged and unfruitful is not being faithful. There, there's a right place for the intellect. We're not called to be intellectuals, but neither are we to be anti-intellectual. We're not anti-learning. There's a big important place in the Christian experience for excitement and joy and peace, but not to the exclusion of the mind. So he names two things that we do in worship, prayer and singing. And he says, both prayer and singing must be done intelligently with the mind. Both must be done fervently in the spirit. The mind is active in everything we do in worship. And so there's no part of what we do together where you can put your brain on cruise control. When we respond and when we pray and when we confess our sins, even now as you sit and listen, it's, it's work. It's work to stay engaged, to stay awake, to think about what you're saying, to think about what is being prayed, to, to think about what you are singing, or else how will you honestly say 
amen, just as the guy in Paul's illustration. You can't say amen to a prayer you can't understand. You can't say amen to a prayer you haven't listened to or participated in. And because of this, Paul says, I'd rather say five words that make sense than 10,000 words that no one understands. And this is where we come back to the verse I read at the beginning. Brethren, verse 20, brethren, do not be children in understanding. However, in malice be babes, but in understanding be mature. So when it comes to familiarity with evil, when it comes to experience in sin, he says, I want you to be just like babies, inexperienced, unskilled, unpracticed, innocent. I want you to even be, if I may say, a little bit naive when it comes to really wicked things. I mean, wouldn't it be nice to not know certain things in the world? Wouldn't it, wouldn't, wouldn't it be a whole lot better to, to be ignorant of some things that we actually know about, sadly? Uh, he says, I don't, want you to, I don't want you to be experienced in those things. I don't want you to be a professional sinner. Be without guile. Be without contempt. Be above blame when it comes to malice. But an understanding, be mature. Be an adult when it comes to wisdom and discernment. This statement is is so valuable because we get it exactly the opposite. We are well practiced in sin. We are very mature. We are skilled at sin. We know how to do it and not get caught. We are good at convincing ourselves that it isn't all that bad because we're so familiar with it. It's like breathing. We know all the perversion and all the depths of evil in the world, what people do and how they do it and how they get away with it and what they call it. We have the vocabulary of evil down really good because we're all grown up in sin. We're pretty mature in sin. We are adults when it comes to wickedness. Isn't it odd when you hear about an adult movie or an adult bookstore? We're not really talking about something that really is mature and fully human. We're talking about something that's dehumanizing and really immature. We're adults in that sense. We're adults, we're all grown up in perversion. But when it comes to understanding God's word and thinking God's thoughts after him, we're stuck in kindergarten. There are plenty of Christians who can tell you what movie stars are getting a divorce but who can't tell you in the Bible where to find instruction about divorce. We know all the characters in the Marvel movies, and we know all the words to our favorite songs, and we know all the players on our football team, but we can't name the judges of Israel. We can't name the kings of Israel. We can't name the apostles. That, that goes for us and our children. What, what does it profit our children if they're skilled and well-versed in the doctrines and the characters of the entertainment industry, but if they're ignorant of the Bible? They're mature, they're mature in the world, and babes in the Word. And we want to flip that. We want them to be innocent and, and untainted by the world, but mature in the kingdom. The only way to get past this immaturity, says Paul, is to progress beyond childish babbling into articulate, wise, intelligible speaking. Maturity comes in knowing what God requires. Now he quotes that Isaiah passage that I referred to a few weeks back, verse 21. In the law it is written, with men of other tongues and other lips I will speak to this people and yet for all that they will not hear me, says the Lord. Therefore, tongues are for a sign, not for those who believe, but to unbelievers. But prophesying is not for unbelievers, but for those who believe. This, this little warning of judgment from Isaiah that he quotes in verse 21. Uh, in, with, lip, with men of other tongues and other lips, I will speak to this people. 
um, came from Isaiah. And in Isaiah's immediate context, it was the foreign language of the Assyrian conquerors that represented God's judgment on the people of Israel. God was speaking to them in a foreign tongue through the mouths of the Assyrians because they wouldn't listen to the law in their own language. And this motif is repeated on the day of Pentecost. Tongues, as I said earlier, were a sign to unbelieving uh, Israelites that the gospel is now going to the nations, it's going to the Gentiles. So if you're a Jew and you want God's word, you can't get it in Hebrew anymore. You're going to have to learn it in Greek or another language. So Paul argues now that, that these tongues are primarily assigned to unbelievers, both in confirmation of the power of the gospel and in judgment against unbelieving Israel. But tongues without a translation leaves the unbeliever right there where he was. It doesn't help him because he doesn't understand what's being said to him. But prophecy brings him a message he can understand and become a believer. Prophecy is for belief. It helps the believer and the one coming into belief. Tongues by themselves are for judgment and a, and, and a sign, an accompanying sign, but you need prophecy to grow. So he wraps up the section like this, and I'm, I'm going to stop here because the next section of 14 is going to take uh, some more time and we won't go into the rest of the chapter today. So just the last three verses of this little section, verse 22. Therefore, tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. But prophesying is not for unbelievers, but for those who believe. Therefore, if the whole church comes together in one place and all speak with tongues, and there come in those who are uninformed or unbelievers, will they not say that you're out of your mind? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an uninformed person comes in, he is convinced by all, he is convicted by all. And thus the secrets of the heart are revealed. And so falling down on his face, he will worship God and report that God is truly among you. So the scenario he paints is this. If an unbeliever walks into a room full of people speaking in tongues, he's going to think that you're all out of your mind. But if an unbeliever comes and hears the word preached, it's going to have powerful effects. He will be convinced and convicted. The clear, intelligible word is used by the Holy Spirit to reveal to the man his condition. His whole inner being is searched out by the light of God's word. The things he thought were hidden deep in his heart are drawn out and reproved and judged. And if he submits to the convicting power of the Holy Spirit, Paul says he will come to worship God, recognizing the power of God in the church and says God is truly among you. So prophesying, preaching, teaching leads people to the Lord. That's his promise. Orderly worship then, orderly worship is evangelistic. Mature worship is welcoming and inviting. I think we have this assumption, and maybe we haven't articulated or maybe haven't thought through it, but I, I think we have this assumption that what we all do together in worship on the Lord's Day, we, we might have the sense that it's so weird that none of our neighbors will get it, that, that none of our coworkers or none of our friends or none of our relatives would ever understand it. They might not understand what's going on, uh, and so, so maybe, maybe we shouldn't ask them to join us. Maybe, maybe we should invite them. Well, for one thing, um, that's what you're for. You're a priest. Uh, so sit next to them. Uh, give them an order of worship. Make sure they know what we're singing. And they can pretty much figure it out, right? I mean, the first time you go to an opera or ballet, you don't expect to know everything that's going on. The first time you go to a baseball game, you know, oh, we're supposed to stand up here. Okay, we take off our hat. Okay, we sit down. Oh, there's peanuts. Look at that. There's peanuts. I didn't know this. There's a hot dog. Great. That's great. The first time you go, you think, oh, there's a routine and there's a rhythm and there's a liturgy of the baseball game. The first time you go and you learn it. 
So it is with church. People expect that it's going to be different and they're going to have to figure it out. But, but how much better is it to invite someone into an orderly setting, inviting someone to a worship service where you know what you're in for? You know, because, because we print it all out. There's a bulletin. It's all there. Everything's there. There's no surprises. Nothing. There's no surprises there. How many times have you been somewhere and you go and you sit down on the back pew and you think, oh my goodness, they don't, they don't have an order of worship and they're picking the songs right now. And uh, well, the pastor doesn't, doesn't look like he really planned or prepared. They might just ask me to pray. They might ask me to give a testimony. They might ask me to prophesy. They might ask me to get up and talk for 20 minutes. I don't, I don't know what they're going to do. And that's happened. I've been to places before. It's like, what are we doing now? Oh, we're standing in a circle holding hands. What, what's, what's going on? I don't know. I don't know what's coming up. No, oh, there's stakes. Okay, we're done. We're out of here. Um, no, uh, we trust that the order is very comfortable. It's very, it's very um, uh, uh, stable and predictable in knowing that this is, this is how we enter into God's presence. This is what we do together, edifying each other with each other. And we trust in the reading and the preaching of the word to do its job. Well, so uh, just, just to kind of end here, because there's more in chapter 14, as I said, and we're going to save that for next week. But, but when Paul says that outsiders will see this order and the intelligibility and declare that God is really among you, he's talking about something that the prophets referred to. The prophets talked about the future in which Gentiles will come to acknowledge that the God of Israel is the God and King and the ruler of the whole world. And, and this is the picture that Isaiah paints. And I'm, I'm uh, running out of time, but, but pay close attention to what uh, the prophet Isaiah says, because this is what, this is what Paul is referring back to. In uh, Isaiah 45, verse 14, Thus says Yahweh, the labor of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and of the Sabaeans, men of stature, shall come over to you and they shall be yours. They shall walk behind you. They shall come over in chains and they shall bow down to you. They will make supplication to you saying, surely God is in you and there is no other. There is no other God. The promise is that the nations, when Israel is faithful, when Israel is pleasing to God, when, when Israel obeys what God has said, and when they speak his word intelligibly and clearly backed up with lives that are in conformity to what God says, that the nations will come and join them. And in Isaiah 45, this is in the middle of a long discourse on the intelligibility and the knowability of God. I want to skip down to verse 18 in that very same chapter. For thus says Yahweh, who created the heavens, who is God, who formed the earth and made it, who has established it, who did not create it in vain, who formed it to be inhabited. I am Yahweh, and there is no other. I have not spoken in secret in a dark place of the earth. I did not say to the seed of Jacob, seek me in vain. I, Yahweh, speak, I shout, I declare righteousness, I declare things that are right. Assemble yourselves and come, draw near together, you who have escaped from the nations. They have no knowledge who carry the wood of their carved image and pray to a God that cannot save. Tell and bring forth your case. Yes, let them take counsel together. Who has declared this from ancient time? Who has told it from that time? Have not I, Yahweh, and there is no other God besides me, a just God and a savior. There is none besides me. Look to me and be saved all you ends of the earth for I am God and there is no other. And God declares there that he is real and he is consistent and he is good and he has spoken and that he has revealed himself and that there is no other God. 
the prophet Zechariah says something similar. We don't have time. Uh, Zechariah 8, if you want to look it up later. This is what Paul has in mind. This was the mission of Israel, to be the crystal clear communication of God's word to the nations, a mission that is now granted to the church. So taking this all together, the promise is when the church prophesies, that is, when the church sounds out the intelligible, unwavering, unapologetic, authentic word of God, it becomes the instrument through which God accomplishes the conversion of the nations. When the church babbles, when she muddies the water by getting wrapped up in whatever the outrage of the day is. You turn on the news, what is the outrage du jour? What do we, what do we get wrapped up with? When she does that, when she takes her cues from the society, when she takes up whatever cause the cool kids and the progressives present to pull her off course, when she moves away from the very clear, articulate word of God in the scriptures, she becomes a hindrance to the gospel being heard and understood. She's more like Babel than Pentecost. And what I love about you and what I love about us is that at the very least, we are a people who are really serious about hearing what God says and doing it. We're not enamored with novelty. We're not enamored with silliness. We aren't swept up in every wave of doctrine. We love God's word because we pray it, we sing it, we say it, we read it. We don't skip over the tough parts. None of it embarrasses us. What part of the Bible embarrasses you? None of it embarrasses me. I love every word of it. We don't skip over it, any of it. We don't apologize for any of it. But the challenge for you and me is to continue speaking it clearly and consistently to each other, to our families, to the world, to our neighbors, to continue to prophesy. Not that we foretell the future, no, but that we see God's revelation in his word. We pray that the Holy Spirit would help us read it and absorb it, hear it and live it and enable us to say the things that need to be heard. Read the word and speak the word. The word renews and refreshes us, gives us strength and makes us of one mind and one purpose so that we're no longer short-sighted, selfish children, but that we're growing up into the conformity of the image of our Savior Jesus, into perfection and fullness and maturity. And that is what Paul is encouraging the Corinthians to do. We'll pick up here next week. Let's pray. Father in heaven, strengthen us again with your word. Father, fill us with your spirit, just as you've shown us you're willing to do to uh, speak it, to preach it, to declare it, to teach it to each other and to the world. Father, make us able, mature students of your word. Give us a thirst that can only be quenched by the scriptures. Give us a hunger that cannot be sated apart from the scriptures. Father, lead us, your children, into your precepts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.